So I recently started at a, uh, a new company. Uh, all of the IT branch that I work in was traded off to a global company. And um, I've been at this new company for probably about a year and a half now. And uh, doing exactly the same work that I've done for the past six years. But we have meetings as the whole branch of all of the company that supports IT together. And it's hard to be in those meetings because, uh, honestly, I get lost. Because uh, at this new company, basically everything is an abbreviation. And they assume that everyone knows what they're talking about when they start talking about the COE and the DMJ and the PTT and they just go on. And I don't know what they're talking about. Even though they're speaking English, I can't really follow the meaning of what they're saying because I don't have the same background as they do. Well, very often for us, this is the way it is when we're reading the Bible. There's so much that we don't know that the people to whom these uh, passages were written uh, were aware of and the, the experience because we're talking about ancient history in another culture on the other side of the globe. And uh, so it's oftentimes hard for us as we approach a passage like this that is so removed from our experience. There's parts of the Bible that are really easy to relate to when they're speaking about universal experiences of joy or sorrow, love, betrayal, death or whatever else these uh, things are, are talking about, where we can connect to a person's experience. But then we come to a passage like Obadiah. I would venture to say that probably Obadiah is no one's favorite book in the Bible here. Um, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament, and we don't really know a whole lot about Obadiah. We're not even completely certain when it was written, other than it is pretty clear that it was after Jerusalem was destroyed. The shortest book in the Old Testament that's never even quoted in the New Testament. And so what can we relate to? Maybe you, like me, when I was uh, originally reading these uh, when I was younger for the first time, this book, maybe you didn't find anything to relate to. We listen and we say, oh, cool, judgment on Edom. Awesome. But without having an understanding of the significance of what God's saying, uh, we can just read through this book and not find anything to resonate with us. So we need some explanation about the book of Obadiah. But the book of Obadiah is also something that's contained in God's word. And so even though on the surface it may seem like it is not all that rich, it is God's word and therefore it is important for us to wrestle with. Um, and so I think that as we find and dig into this book of Obadiah, though it's short and unfamiliar and honestly on the surface not incredibly interesting, 
we're going to find that is rich in its theology and relevant for us today. So as we look at this text, I'd like to uh, approach this and look at it in three different points. The treachery of Edom, the judgment on Edom, and then the coming day of the Lord. So the treachery of Edom. There's some important history behind this book. Um, One thing is, of course, the destruction of Jerusalem that happens in 586 B.C., Uh, when the Babylonians sweep in and conquer the nation. But even more important than that background is the story of two twin brothers that we find in the book of Genesis, Jacob and Esau. Esau was also called Israel, and it's after him that the nation of Israel was named. And Esau, his, his older brother, had a nickname because in Hebrew, the word Edom means red. He had red hair, and so people called him red. And so the nation that comes after him is named after him. What we have is a set of brothers and the nations that they found that are next to one another. If you know the story of Jacob and Esau and Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Jacob and all of his sons, uh, you know that we're talking about a really dysfunctional family. And uh, can't really go into it, uh, the endless drama that you can read about in Genesis 24 through 36. But after these, these bitter fights where Esau was even ready to kill his brother Jacob... They make peace, and they settle close to one another. Jacob and his descendants settle in Canaan, and Esau's uh, descendants settle in an area called Mount Seir, and they live up in the mountains so that they have an eagle-eye view of everything around them, their family and their neighbors. And so there's a bond that exists between Edom and the Israelites. The people who are uh, described in this book, in this passage, are part of a collectivist society. One that recognizes that there is obligation one to another. And they don't think of themselves primarily as uh, autonomous individuals, but First, they think of themselves as a part of the whole. When people were thinking about themselves, they would think first of themselves as a member of a family. And then a clan, and then a tribe, and then a whole people group, and so on. The the point that I'm making and bringing this out for is that Obadiah, when he is writing this passage, assumes that them being from the same family gives them a bond of kinship that ought to have entailed certain obligations one to another. 
And so this isn't exactly like our modern context because uh, we don't have nations right next to us that were uh, settled by our grandfather's brother. But we do understand the idea of allies. We understand that there are certain countries that we are friends with, that we agree that we're not going to attack, that we're not going to undermine. And the point that Obadiah is driving home when speaking about the treachery of Edom is that these two neighboring nations ought to have been allies because they're family. But Edom was not an ally to Judah. And that's why we see the condemnation of Edom in this book. Uh, Edom is condemned because as Jerusalem was being conquered, as the Babylonians were sweeping through to uh, just terrorize the whole area, you can read about the, the destruction and the aftermath in the book of Lamentations. How awful it was for the people who were living in Jerusalem. The condemnation comes because as this was happening, Edom stood by and just watched. They should have, they could have helped Edom. Uh, Edom could have helped the, the nation of Judah during this time of battle, but they did nothing. And more than just this, the, the, the text tells us what Edom has done by giving us one piece right after another. It unfolds exactly what Edom has done. So more than just standing by and doing nothing, Edom watched and they laughed as these things were happening to this country of their their family. And so, though they may not have done anything actively to destroy Jerusalem, we're told in this passage that them being able to help but choosing not to was the same as if they had been a part of the army that was coming through Judah. When Jerusalem uh, fell, there was more than just standing idly by and laughing taking pleasure in the downfall of their family. This book tells us that after Jerusalem was destroyed, the Edomites went in and they took all the plunder. All of the money, all of the the possessions that were left behind, they said, well, we'll take this. And so this time that was so trying and and, uh, troublesome This terrible situation for the nation of Judah was a time of prosperity for Edom because of what they did in stealing the wealth of their brothers. But it gets worse than this. As they saw the people fleeing from the destruction of the city, seeking to spare the lives of their, their children, of, their, of themselves, they're, uh, they're running away. The nation of Edom 
hid along the paths where they knew the refugees would be running. And they trapped them. They captured the the people who were fleeing from war and they sold them into slavery or gave them over to Babylon as prisoners of war. And when they did this, when they they plundered the city, the, the book tells us that they did more plundering than even plunderers did because they left nothing. Nothing whatsoever for people even to eat, for people to even be able to grow things in the next season. They stripped the whole nation bare. And they did this to their family. Now, the reason that, ba- that Babylon was coming through and the reason they were, de- they were destroying this nation, destroying Jerusalem, their capital, and bringing them away into Babylon as exiles was because of the punishment for the sins of the people of God and their wickedness. God had warned the people over and over, if you continue in your rebellion, you're going to go into exile. But even though God's people were under the judgment of God, Edom is not let off the hook for their treachery. Even though God's people were receiving his judgment for their sins, they were still God's people. And Edom were opposing God's people and therefore opposing God himself. Edom treated them wickedly. And so now we are told for their treachery, Edom is going to be punished for their their wickedness. They're engaging in all of the destruction against the people of God. And this leads us to our second point, the judgment of on Edom. The book of Obadiah begins with the pronouncement of judgment against Edom. It says that God has told his people by his prophets already that Edom is going to fall and they they uh, point out that they can already see God's promises beginning to come true. They've heard rumors that these nations that are allies with Edom have been sending messengers one to another and saying to them, let's go to war against Edom. The Lord addresses Edom directly in this book. In the, in the passage, and this is a slightly dis- different translation than what was read, but uh, same idea. The presumptuousness in your heart has deceived you because of your dwelling in the concealed places in the cliffs and living in the heights. You have said in your heart, who can bring me down to earth? And then God's response is this. Even if you make your dwelling place as high as the eagle's place of dwelling. Even if you set your nest between the stars in the sky from that place, meaning however high you can go up, God says, I will bring you down. 
Edom lived on the very, very top of a mountain. They lived 5,000 feet above sea level. And their location gave them a view of everything. So they could see approaching armies coming from miles away and they could be prepared. And then these armies would have to make their trek up the mountain. The people would be prepared. And they trusted in their location and their ability to be wise politically thinking that they would be protected because of their inaccessibility. But all of their geographic and military military advantages mean nothing because God plans to bring judgment on Edom for what they've done. God says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you will be cut off forever. God is saying to the people of Edom in this book, you're known for your wisdom and politics and doing treaties. Guess what? That's not going to save you. You're known for the strength of your army and you've put your trust in that. But guess what? That is not going to save you either. Edom betrayed its ally Judah. And so God tells them that they are going to be betrayed by their allies. A fitting punishment for their sin. Edom plundered Judah. And so God says... You will be plundered. Edom participated in the destruction of Jerusalem, though simply by doing nothing. And so Edom will also be destroyed. And I think this is the place where we can all maybe begin to connect. Though none of us have an emotional attachment to the fall of Edom. We can understand the power of what's being said here and how it applies to all time. We know that with power and authority, so often comes pride and self-confidence. Hubris, we might call it. And this is a general theme in the Bible. God will make the arrogant low. God will knock the prideful down. From the Bible to the movies that we watch, this is a major theme, and this is some of, I think, the best moments. When you're reading books, when you're watching movies, when you're you're, uh, reading a passage of the Bible, when you get to see the arrogant and wicked fall. And... The hubris, the the excessive pride is always a major factor that leads to their downfall. And the same thing is going to be true about Edom. Their pride is going to be their downfall. Their former allies have set a snare or trap right under them and they would have seen it coming 
if they weren't so prideful. If they didn't trust so much in their strength and wisdom. This is pervasive through the Bible. This is pervasive through the the stories that we love. Whether you're talking about Haman in the book of Esther being hung on the gallows that he has constructed. Or you're talking about Pharaoh who says, I don't know who the Lord is and learns who the Lord is. The Lord of the Rings, the downfall of Sauron. Shawshank Redemption, the downfall of Warden Norton, Rocky IV, the Goonies. We love these moments when the wicked and prideful villain gets what's coming to them. We love these stories. We seek them out because it speaks to an innate desire within us to see wickedness punished and things set right. That desire that we have, though, of course, it's been corrupted by sin, is a desire for heaven itself. It's a hunger for the downfall of evil, which can only be achieved by God setting things right. Because of our sinfulness, our sinful nature, this desire, of course, has been corrupted And as a human race, we have a really great knack for counterfeit things, to put those in the place of what God has. And I think that this is the the reason that we have such a special ability to be utopian, to, to believe that we have the power and the ability to solve all problems if we just do it right. And we haven't figured out yet how to do it right. But maybe if we just enact the right policies or try harder or elect different people, then the future looks bright. But every utopian idea turns out to be a failure because it always involves sinful people. There's no such thing as a perfect society. There's no such thing as a golden age. We may look back and think things were better 50 years ago and that was somehow our golden age. But guess what? People 50 years ago were looking back 50 years before thinking that that was the golden age. It's easy for us to think that. But the Bible itself says those who look back on the former days and think, oh, those were the days, do not do this according to wisdom. Human society is always plagued by sin and will always be plagued by sin because of our sinful nature. That is until the fulfillment of our eschatological hopes when Christ returns. I threw that word in there uh, because Justin texted me last night that he thinks that everyone would be confused if I didn't use the word eschatology at least once in the sermon, so uh, I did it and I worked it in right after that. Um, So this is a transition point here. It's transitioning to our last point, the coming day of the Lord. And as we transition, I want to say something about politics because this is a political book written to a political enemy of Judah. 
Edom's sin is that they placed their trust in the strength of their nation over and above the strength of God. There are many problems in this world, and you may be convinced that your particular political opinion is the way to solve it. And hey, maybe you're right. But allow me to make this one point, and and please listen to, to this. The power that God has handed over to nations is the power of the sword. That's what Paul calls it in the book of Romans. It's a power to restrain human sinfulness, not to change human sinfulness. That's what the Bible teaches, that at best, political power only can restrain sin. Your political party could win every single office from local to national for the next 100 years and only elect ethical leaders. And the product at best would be a society that does a kind of good job restraining sin, holding it at bay. It's easy for us to assume that our particular political opinions, if enacted, will usher in a golden age. Well, biblically, this can't be true. The sin of humanity prevents us from achieving our goal, and at best, we'll be building a new Tower of Babel in our attempts to climb our way to the heavens. We can't trust in the power of our side of the political fence or even in the power of our country. Because when we do this, we are doing exactly what the Edomites did in trusting in their own ingenuity, power, and wisdom. Think of this. The Israelites, during their period after coming out of Egypt, being rescued from slavery, were directly ruled by God and God's laws. And that nation didn't work out. If God's law doesn't itself change the human sinfulness and doesn't work out because of our rebellion, then human law is certainly not going to do what God's law was powerless to do. Our hunger for utopia, our hunger for a golden age is a hunger that only God can fulfill. That hunger is satisfied only by the kingdom of God, though we may try to put other things in its place. What we need is for things to to be set right. The feeling of security and hope that you have when your party wins is a counterfeit. That feeling of dread that you have when the other party wins betrays that we have put our hope in the wrong place. And this is where Obadiah is going. 
His conclusion is that the kingdom of God must come. Not some better version of the kingdom of this world. And this leads to the final point, the coming day of the Lord. There's an interesting shift that happens in the book of Obadiah, and you could miss it if you, if you weren't slowing down and reading. The hubris of Edom is condemned, and the announcement is made that the nation is going to fall because of their wicked deeds, because of her pride. I think we've all heard the, the popular saying, which is a paraphrase of uh, Proverbs 16.8, pride comes before a fall. We're hearing what God is saying. We're hearing about the downfall of Edom. And so we are rooting for Judah. And what we might expect as the book continues is to hear more about Edom's destruction. How is God going to do it? We're building up to this climax and then it changes. God warned us about Edom and their sin and tells them to stop their wickedness, but then there's this brilliant shift. The warning that God gives through Obadiah is grounded not on the judgment of Edom. And it could have been. Think of the book of Jonah, where that's exactly what happens. The, the nation of Nineveh is told to respond to, to repent or their city is going to be destroyed. And so it could just continue with Edom, Edom, Edom. We've already been told that the, 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 the destruction of Edom is inevitable. And things have been set in motion to bring this about. But God grounds his call to repentance not in the destruction of Edom, so that they might repent. But what does it say? It says, the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. So suddenly we've gone from talking about Edom to all, to all nations. It's not just a call for them to repent, it's a call for you to repent. Judgment on Edom, shifting to the judgment on the nations, happens seamlessly, although it's maybe not as clear in English. Obadiah sees the destruction and God's confrontation of Edom and their fall because of their pride as simply an example of what happens to all prideful nations. All the rest of the nations will fall. This prophecy of, against Edom is a prophecy against all wicked nations of which Edom is simply one part. And the seamless trans, transition that happens is because of some Hebrew wordplay. The, the word Edom is spelled in Hebrew with the same three consonants as the word for humanity. There's just some different vowel pointing. And so Adam and Edom 
are both how they would be pronounced. And so Edom is an example of what happens to all those opposed to God. All Adam will fall the same as Edom. As is the case with all biblical prophecy, God's judgment is not his final word. Humanity is certainly wicked and deserving of God's judgment. All you need to do is look around. All you need to do is pick up newspapers. All you need to do is check out Facebook. Things are screwed up and there's no question about what we deserve. We deserve God's judgment. But the amazing thing about the nature of God is that along with the promise of judgment comes also a promise of salvation, of restoration. God's judgment speaks about the present reality for his readers. But it also speaks of that eternal truth of all nations falling. And so it is the same with the salvation that's promised here. This this book speaks of the hope of the people returning to their homeland from exile after God's judgment was over in Babylon, that they would be restored. But there's also the sense in which this deliverance and salvation from exile is only an example of the way that God saves people eternally. As I close here, there are three places that I want to go briefly that I think help us interpret this this hopeful conclusion in the book of Obadiah. The first is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, which has a similar ring to it as the, the, the second half of Obadiah especially verses uh, 19 through 21 in Obadiah. So here's what Isaiah says. I think that maybe this is just clearer what, uh, what's being said at the end. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above all of the hills and all nations will flow unto it. And the people shall go and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall flow the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In that passage and in ours, we clearly see that the, the people of God understood the return from exile and the establishment of God's kingdom of something that was only complete when all things had been set right. What this passage is speaking about, Obadiah and and Isaiah, is the Hebrew word shalom, which 
uh, many of you probably know is the, the word for peace. But it carries with it much more than what we think of as peace. Of course, it assumes peace. There's no war happening. But also a wholeness and deliverance. Not merely the absence of war, but the absence of the need for war. Isaiah is clearly speaking of the age to come. Eschatology, if you prefer. The time after God has judged the wicked and restored the earth. When all things have been set right and justice and and equity are there. When all nations are welcomed into God's kingdom. And the final two places that I want to briefly mention. Because this idea of the day of the Lord is something that is developed through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I want to look very briefly at the books that surround Obadiah, Joel and Amos. Because Obadiah tells us of what the day of the Lord is going to look like, judgment for the wicked. It speaks of the reckoning that happens. In Joel, the prophet speaks about the aftermath of the day of the Lord. What happens after the judgment comes? Well, Joel tells us that in the aftermath, God will save anyone who calls on his name. And Amos, the prophet prophesies that the Lord judges his people, but then he is going to restore Israel and restore the house of David. This was quoted in the New Testament reading from the book of Acts. That God is going to raise up and restore his people and bring in the other nations. What's amazing about this is that the vision that Amos has of the kingdom of God is that even Edom would be restored. Even the enemies of God, if they call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. The Old Testament clearly anticipates that salvation will be opened to all the nations. The judgment has fallen upon the people is accompanied with that promise that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who repents will be forgiven. Obadiah's promise speaks of the downfall of wickedness, but also the coming of the healing presence of God and peace. But how does that all work? The day of the Lord. Judgment day. That's how it works. Judgment day is coming when Christ returns. For all those who are wicked. But in the middle of history, something happened. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on humanity, lived a perfect life, preached that the kingdom of God has arrived and is crucified. And on that cross, Jesus takes on the sins of God's people. So let's put that just another way, that 
resonates with this passage in Obadiah. If you have put your faith in Christ, the day of the Lord has already come and gone. Because the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment, fell on Jesus Christ instead of you. If you put your faith in Christ, you will be saved. And so therefore, you have nothing to fear on judgment day when Christ returns. You will not be judged based on your performance, but by the perfect performance of Jesus Christ. I hope that you have already put your faith in Christ. But if you haven't, I want to invite you to experience an eternal love that's not based on your performance. That you don't have to earn, but that is given freely. Your sins can be forgiven. Healing can come in the place of pain. Please talk to one of the elders. Please talk to me or Pastor... Uh, Pastor Kevin, if, if you want to join yourself to the church, to join yourself to Christ. But let's just follow this path that Obadiah speaks of and apply it directly to you, directly to me. You haven't lived the way that you should have. You haven't loved the way that you love God the way that you should have. You haven't loved others the way that you should have. God's judgment is real. And it will be poured out on all the wicked. But God has not left you without hope. You can be judged by your performance. And let me tell you that that's not good. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But instead, you can be judged by the perfect performance of Jesus Christ in your place. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the the message of hope that we are given from the book of Obadiah, that the judgment will come on the wicked, but that we who are wicked can be saved. Lord, we ask that you would please reveal to us your greatness, your mercy. We pray that you would keep us and that there are those who have not put their faith in Christ, that by your Holy Spirit you would draw them. We thank you for your love and grace and mercy. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.